Jazz pianist Eric Reed recently on Facebook posted a concise diatribe regarding the idea of the musician. He stated, and I quote, a musician does not do the music thing, so don't ask him if he's still doing the music thing. No one ever asks, are you still doing the married thing, the parent thing, the doctor thing, the breathing thing, etc., etc., and on and on it went. It was a post that got passed around and shared by many musicians because it conveyed the frustration many of us in the fine arts feel when dealing with the outside world's perceptions of what we do. However, when it comes to hard rock, there is quite a history of buffoonery, gluttony, immorality, ignorance, and a touch of madness. One can be forgiven for concluding that it's a profession for fools. There's a lot of living down to do when those who preceded you bragged about having herpes or snorting the cremated remains of their father. I can now see why most wouldn't take what I do seriously. But it never stings as hard as it does when on the home front, where no matter what you do never seems to get noticed, whether it's within the domestic music business or family get-togethers at Christmas. I have always been passive-aggressively made aware by certain family members that no matter what my band accomplishes, it will never be respectable enough or even worth noting. I've long since come to terms with this. Sometimes familiarity doesn't breed contempt, but rather a cold, unintentional indifference. Fuel for the fire, I suppose. But I won't make that same mistake. When I see someone who can wield within the music industry, on any level, in any situation, my cap is doffed. It may seem like fun and frivolity for some entering the biz, but those people quickly leave with their tail between their legs. A lot end up losing their minds. The reason why some are able to endure in this music industry longer than others is probably because they lost their minds years ago, but continued forward. And it's these people that continued forward that I tend to admire, especially the few that I've been able to watch courtside because they're from my hometown. To be able to see someone in your scene achieve success and do it in a myriad of ways is both inspiring and a confirmation to keep going. Adam Sewell is someone I've kept abreast of from the sidelines for years. I remember when I was in high school, Adam worked at the Record Peddler, the coolest record store in the city, and I watched him sing in his band's Totem Tance, Monster Voodoo Machine, and Damn 13. Adam then went behind the scenes to eventually become the general manager, label director, of Sanctuary Records in Canada. He formed Riot Rock Management and has managed the esteemed metal phenomenon Lacuna Coil for the last 10 years and continues to do so to this day. It doesn't stop there. With his Stereo Dynamite Recordings record label, Adam has put out releases by Arise and Ruin, The Von Dratz, as well as his own musical projects like Bastard Child Death Cult and Defcon Sound System. But it's Juno award-winning Billboard-charting soul singer Simone Denny and her debut solo release, The Stereo Dynamite Sessions Volume 1, that has Adam drawing on all his skills as writer, producer, and manager of the project. I'm sure I'm forgetting his other undertakings, but forgive me, it's hard to keep up with Adam. When our old drummer Dan Cornelius joined our band back in 2006, it was his time spent in Damn 13 that made me take notice. It didn't automatically win him the spot, 
but it definitely made me feel more comfortable having him join our band. This past January, we donated a song to the Music for Boobies compilation album released on Rude Records for the Keep a Breast charity that raises awareness for breast cancer. The track we submitted was our song Wild Woman off our last album Fire Music. But this track was a special version because it featured Christina Scabia from Lacuna Coil on vocals. It was an honor to collaborate with Christina on our song and for such a great cause, too. And for me, it was pretty cool that Adam's world crossed paths with ours. Initially, when leading up to my meeting with Adam, I quickly messaged Scott Middleton from the Cancer Bats, asking him if he could relay anything that I might not know about Adam, since they were good friends. But even though Scott was helpful, I didn't really need it. Adam is someone who can toss off a story that can make your head spin at the drop of a dime, whether it's being the opening band for Marilyn Manson across America or working Robert Plant's new solo album. Adam is a treasure trove of experience. So, of course, I had to have Adam on the podcast. I'd like to thank Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Chino Loco's Restaurants for making fish burritos stuffed with chow mein noodles. And thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm very happy to hear when someone comes up to me or they tweet me and they say they listen to the uh, podcast or they listen to a certain episode. It makes me feel great. It's free to listen to, it's free to download, it's free to subscribe. Please do so today if you haven't already. Okay, Adam Sewell is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Danko's crew will tell for free. I'm sad, but I like to sometimes get me from fucked up. Stop playing hangs out, to Danko Jones then snacking on some broken bones and scaredy cats will run amok when rock and roll starts to talk flapping gums and striking tongues a chilly podcast has now begun <laughs> ladies and gentlemen boys and girls Get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts now! Hey, Adam, it's great to have you on the podcast today. It's it's great to be back after two minutes. (laughs) Thanks for uh, having me here uh, in in your home. In the Fortress of Solitude? The Stereo Dynamite. HQ, right? This is it, yeah. This is it. This is the new one. So, um, we've talked about doing this podcast for a long time. When we were on Nikki's podcast, Everything But the Kitchen Sink Together. Yes. That was great. 
I had a good time. Enjoyed that. That was good. There's some stories that I still get a chuckle over that you told. <laughs> um, but then, then we then we walked to the subway, all three of us together, and you told even more stories just off the top of your head. You're like you've been around long enough in different ways in the music industry, um, where you're one of those guys that can just toss off a story about like a heavy story um, <laughs> at the drop of a hat. And, you know, I've always like been, you know, when I got into music and I got into bands, I started meeting people downtown. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I was like, ah, oh, you know, one day I want to be like one of those dudes who like kind of, you know, keep it close to the vest. But then when you approach them, they just drop this fucking story <laughs> that you're just like, what? <laughs> Um, and you're like one of those dudes, I think, because um, you, for everything from Monster Voodoo Machine to Damn 13 to Lacuna Coil, I mean, I, when I when I started to not research you, because I don't really do any research, sure. but I'm like, I know Adam. I got this. <laughs> so so then I was then I was like, oh, fuck, I forgot about this about him and this happened and this and. There's all these things like, um, like uh, what is it? Bastard Child Death, Death Cult, Cult is yeah. another project that you do. Um, you know, I mean, like you could throw the record. You know, being at the record peddler. Yeah, the like eighties. Yeah, the that mix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I remember you as as the guy behind the counter working with Brian Taylor at the record peddler, and you know, I'd have to go up to you whether you remember or not. And, you know, have to be okay with what I'm putting on the table if you approve. (laughs) And uh, the worst, I was thinking about it, like, today, about the peddler days. And the worst, I I just, the only time I could go in there was, like, on the weekends. Sure, yeah. Because there would be, especially when you guys moved on Young Street. Right. I would go and do homework at the, the reference library, come down afterwards. And I'm just so, I think neurotic about giving up my knapsack to oh no i I don't know i understand i couldn't concentrate on looking at records this is this is the sounds of toronto (laughs) (laughs) but that that was that was the one thing i remember is like well i can't even concentrate first of all they don't trust me (laughs) and i don't trust them (laughs) um well that was my that was my first job when I, I was there was uh, I, I used to spend Saturdays just checking people's bags at the door. Yeah. You know, and that was what I was supposed to be doing. In reality, I was probably sitting there reading, you know, Maximum Rock and Roll and NME and Kerrang! And, yeah. you know, Melody Maker front to back while Brian smacked me in the back of the head and told me to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was wondering about and then And then I think I saw... Was it Toten Tants or, or I saw Monster Voodoo Machine? I'm like, hey, that's the guy who works at the Peddler and he's on stage and I bought a ticket to the show. That guy's life rules. He's just like, <laughs> he just, he's surrounded by records. I have to go to school and then he plays in, he plays shows and he sings in a band. <laughs> that's the, that's the coolest life ever. I, 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 I will tell you the truth, the, the honest truth. Um, no, don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> when I was I, I was having a lot of trouble 
uh, in high school, and I was a terrible student, and um, I, I have no, I, I honestly, I don't know. I still, to this day, I, am, I just, I count my lucky stars that it happened, but I got hired to work at the record peddler. Yeah, which was the coolest record which, store in, in the, the entire time. country. Yeah. I mean, hands down, there was, it was probably, it was, especially with what was going on behind the scenes with as far as importing and exporting records yeah. across the country. I mean, the record peddler can easily take claim to breaking bands like Killing Joke and The Cult and The Cure and New Order and Joy Division, blah, 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 in the country. I mean, it's, hands down, it was that important to what was going on. I mean, everybody at, you know, uh, burgeoning alternative radio and television bought their records from us. Yeah. I mean, Saturday mornings was the DJs from CFNY and, and the people from much music and city TV coming in and we would sell them their records. Yeah. Um, so I know for a fact that that's how that stuff happened. Um, but I was, you know, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was, you know, 12 years old and I can remember thinking like all I want in life is to work at that record store. That's what I want. I want to work there. And I was fucking terrified going into the place when it was down on, uh, on, Carl, Queen, on Queen East. No, Queen oh, East. Oh, Queen East. Yeah. Okay. It was right beside the old city TV. And I was terrified going in. I was like, holy fuck. But they played everything that I loved. And it was like, this is amazing. Um, to somehow within five years later, you know, all of a sudden, like, I had the keys to the store. Yeah. And I quit high school. I was like, I have the job I want. Like, why do I need to stay in school <laughs> when I have the job that I want? This is this is everything I want out of life. And it it was, you know, it, it was really great. And it was a really great education um, musically and, and sort of meeting a lot of great people in the music industry and everything. But it was also a weird place, too, because you had, it was the hub of attitude and the hub of musical egos and the hub of know-it-alls and every smart-ass wannabe music journalist. Um, and it, it, you know, you, for as, as, um, as a, such a great experience as it was, um, it, it also sucked a lot too because you had to put up with a lot of fucking douchebags. Yeah. You know, and... I, I suppose I mean that was all my love in the heart, and you know it's like if you're towards music fans, you know. But just you know, I mean, there's only so many times you can sit there and you see somebody come through the door, and you know, like all they're gonna do is talk about how much shit sucks. And I just can't have this conversation today. I don't want to have this conversation today. And that happened a lot, you know. I can imagine people don't re like people like I know people had this thing about like especially with Brian. Um, but about like I was afraid to put the record on the counter for what he'd say but like you need to remember that for like every time that like there may have been a smart ass comment about somebody buying a record we had to put up with 30 smart ass conversations from people who needed to try and prove that they knew more about music than we did and that their opinions on music were more valid than ours not that we cared I didn't give a fuck but people like went out of their way to like try and like prove that they their experience with music was more valid than ours. I, yeah, I I could never at that time I could never even dare do that to you guys. Like you guys to me like uh I was so intimidated by all you guys. All of you guys. If you're behind the counter at the peddler, 
and I eventually ended up behind the counter. <laughs> I had like two two shifts at the end, near the oh, end. Oh, on, on Queen? On, on Young. Oh, on Young? Really? On, on Young, yeah. On Young. Oh, so I, long after I was gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you you weren't there. It was Daniel. Daniel got me in. Oh, a couple that's of great. Shifts. Yeah. Cool. Um, when, um, Redemption. Yes. <laughs> oh. um, when um, um, Mark Jarrett couldn't make a shift or oh, something. Oh, cool. So I got subbed in there. And then um, I think we all three did a shift together once. But um, I couldn't dare do that. I think there was a, a one time or two times... I think I went up to the counter. I don't know who it was who was working. I'm like, what, what, what do you, what do you, what is this? And then you'd like, don't you, you know, the answer would be like, don't you know, this is whatever. Right. You should know this. Cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, the kids in the hall sketch about the peddler. Have you ever seen that? I probably have. Like I a, can't remember. The guy, like Dave Foley or someone walks into the record store and he's like, hey man, have you got the new uh, Depeche Mode record? Guy behind the guy's like, yeah, we got it, but it sucks. <laughs> yeah, and the whole sketch is just the guy asking for records and everything. Yeah, but it sucks. And I remember when that came on, like all of a sudden these people started calling, like, "You guys are on kids in the hall. You guys are on kids in the hall." <laughs> you know, I think it is totally. It was totally you guys, and they're um, they're even now like with Mark Maron's uh, show on Netflix. He has an episode about him trying to win you know, get in the good graces of some guy who works at a record store. And I, I, and, and, uh, I, I talked to, uh, Damien Abraham, um, on his podcast, turned out a punk about you when I went in. Cause I won tickets to Bri at Brian's show, listening to Brian's show. And I had to pick him up at the peddler. And then you were like, you got to talk to that guy in the back. And I just turned and I'm like, no, no it's not that guy. Don't, I didn't know. That. It's like, don't, don't tell me I got it. And then it was him. And he was having lunch. Oh, good and he time. Didn't, didn't say a word when I said, I'm here to pick up the tickets. Right. He didn't say a word to me. He just gave the tickets and he gave them to me. And uh, I was like, fuck, man, I listen to your fucking show, man. <laughs> and then um, one time I went to the peddler on the day a Slayer album was to come out. Right. And you guys didn't have it. So Brian gave me uh, the cassette, uh, play copy of it. And I walked out of there like going, what just happened? Like, yeah. I, I, did I just like cross a, a new level? Did I get into a new tier because I've walked in a certain amount of times? <laughs> There's some sort of facial recognition. You know, here, I mean, here's the thing. For as much as people wanted to bag on us for being, you know, douchebags at the record store, um, I, I cannot think of a single person who worked there who didn't, numerous times go out of their way to you know give people music or turn people on to new things or um you know to really do something to encourage people to to hear something new you know i mean i i, I know the reputation and look i think by the time that even by the time that i got in there which you know i started in 87 i think 80 yeah probably 87 um i was like just young and like going along with it. It wasn't like I wasn't one of the original, you know, peddler fucking badasses. You know, yeah. to me, like that, you know, like I remember Karen who used to work there, who uh, was this girl who's a lot like Kira from Black Flag. She always reminded me of her. She ended up at Vortex for a long time, Vortex Records. 
Uh, on Young? Uh, Eglinton? No, on... Uh, Queen? On Queen. Okay. Or, sorry, no, no, she was on Young Street, I think. I think she was on the at the Young Street location. Oh, okay. But Karen, like, she was fucking... I mean, that woman could shut you down with a fucking death stare. Right. But at the same time, she turned me on to a lot of great music right. and everything. And I remember getting in there, and I think I was kind of at this age of, like, trying to... I'd had a lot of personal problems that I'd been trying to deal with. And part of getting a job at the Peddler and playing in some of the bands that I played in with the people that I played with was really me trying to sort of reinvent myself in a sense as to like get rid of a lot of this negativity that I'd been carrying. And I, you know, look, I'd be the first to admit that like if I met 17 year old me working at the record Peddler, I'd want to smack me in the face. Like I'm not a, I, I don't have any, you know, illusions that, that I was like as cool as anybody else who was there or knew really knew what I was talking about. I was, I was just fucking thankful to be in that fucking place and and working. And after a while, you kind of, you know, do as the Romans do, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And look, I, you know, and you know, I mean, I, I. I you have no idea how thankful I am to Brian Taylor for, for hiring me. Like, it just, it, it probably changed and or saved my life at that time. It really did. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that is another life almost now. I mean, now, I mean, Brian Taylor means a totally different, I, I think of Brian Taylor totally differently than I thought when I was, you know, 16. Um, and it's great when I see Brian. I saw him a couple of weeks ago at the Opera House when. Oh, what's that? Yeah, dude, sacrifice. that was. Yeah, that was pretty. I saw the I saw the footage you you singing with them. That's amazing. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, what was what was I think just as fun was watching Sacrifice with Brian side stage, like against a wall together, the two of us. Right. Just the two of us. There was a wall of, you know. For friends and family who are right beside the stage and you know you just want to give them sure, their yeah, space of and then there's me and Brian up against the wall watching it together you know looking at each other when certain things happen during the show of course, right. exchanging looks and it was that to me was just as cool as going on stage with the band that was oh, like yeah. it was so and I have a uh, Joe Rico's wife took a photo of the two of us against the wall and Joe waiting to get on stage and there's a three of us it's oh to that's me, amazing yeah that's i kind of want to like frame it because to me it means a lot just because yeah of how brian you know and i i grew up you know I, I i was just rolling the dial one night going to high school and i found aggressive rock on tuesday right. and that's how i i i i love this kind of music i just didn't have any this is before the internet i didn't have anything to latch on to and with aggressive rock, that's how I kind of latched on to, oh, there's like a scene. Like there's more than just me yeah. and these bands that that play. Oh, I, I was, look, I was the kid in my bedroom and I had a little candle ghetto blaster that I bought at Consumers Distributing. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I I mean, I didn't even have proper, you know, connector cables, RCA cables to tape anything. So I used to just take the ghetto blaster and I would, play and record and put it right against the speakers right. while the show was on. And I would just record stuff like that. Yeah. You know? um, 
like those were just so important to to building things up here you know and to you know you get a little misty eyed thinking about about that stuff mm -hmm. you know how how incredibly important it, it was just as far as you know giving bands an audience you know and, and turning people on to new music but you know and the peddler it was like I was inundated by music from everywhere. I mean, just thousands of amazing records and, and weekly, you know, you know, dozens of like great new records that were, and it was a, a, an amazing period of time from like, you know, 80, if you look at like the 80s, right up to about 1992, 1993, music was fucking, ex the borders and boundaries were being pushed in every direction. I mean, the fact that, you know, if you want to put it into metal terms, the fact that a band like Napalm Death could push the boundaries as far as they did with that band and spawn Carcass and spawn Meat Hook Seed and spawn God Flesh and spawn, you know, uh, 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 um, Mick Harris, his ambient bands and things. But like the fact that the same group of people, could, their minds could be that open to pushing music in that many different directions. Mm -hmm. To me, that was like beyond inspiring. Like, it's okay. You can do these things now. Right. And then I was playing bass for One Blood. And then at the same time, I started Totem Tance, which was the complete opposite of everything, which was slow everything down and, and like a big rock and roll version of Black Flag almost, mm -hmm. you know, with big grooves and... You know, like the, you know, it was like taking the Necros Tangled Up record and slowing it down. Right. You know, and getting, and to me, I was like, I can do all of these things. But there were a lot of people at that time who were like, what the fuck are you doing? This is shit. This is shit. This is shit. How can you do this if you're doing this? How can you do that if you're doing that? Um, with Voodoo, we, we tried. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. A lot of times, a lot of the times it didn't work, but. When it worked, it was cool, but just trying to throw every, you know, to, to steal a uh, phrase, to throw everything in kitchen sink into one song and see what pans out in the mix, you know. And to me, that was, it was really exciting when we started doing that. Yeah, you guys were one of those acts that were pushing boundaries, and, and that was like in the early 90s too, right? We Yeah, by 1991, we'd done a full album, two videos, and an EP within the first three months of the band being together. And we had soul singers, we had techno remixes, we had fucking hip-hop stuff going on. Because that's what it was all about back then, too. It was like trying to mix up the genres. It was just take everything yeah. and see where it goes and, and see what you can do. And, it was, and, we, and again, it was still slow. I mean, the band was still... This was still the height of thrash. This was the big four at that time and thrash of the Titans or whatever the fuck was going on. I mean, it was during that time period. And we still kept things slow and groovier and heavier, but we added, started adding in more backing tapes and sounds and things just to try and sort of give it some life.
Simone Denny record that I yeah. wrote and produced is the greatest thing I have ever been involved with in my entire life. I, of course, I wanted to get to, to Simone Denny and, and uh, everything about that because when I first see Simone Denny associated with you, right. I don't put the two together. So how did that even come about? Simone Denny, R&B singer, she was with Chris Shepard's with Chris Shepard's Love Inc. Love Inc. Yeah, yeah it's a big techno dance thing. Um, but she's, but her voice—it's not—it's it, not. But this is it. Should not be associated strictly like that. But that's the thing, um, you know, like the music that I grew up on, that is dear to me is is rooted in this like, you know, ready, steady, go era of music. So it's Ike and Tina, and it's the sort of the birth of Motown, and it's the tail end of like kick-ass rock and rock and roll, and mm -hmm. that, and it's—I mean, the Clash are my favorite band. So if you look at the entire body of work that The Clash did, right, yeah. that to me is the palette that you start with. Right. You know, it's a long way from, from White Riot to Straight to Hell. You know, it, it's a, a long fucking way from Clash City Rockers all the way to Death is a Star, which is this is ambient tail out piece on, on combat rock. But that to me, that's, it's like the rule book was written. Here's what you can do. And... Inco and you can incorporate all of these things. And Sandinista is such a sprawling mass of music and there's soul music all over it and all kinds of stuff. And so I was kind of at a point where I was like, I need to really, I, I need to rein this all in and make this work for me. And um, we, on the very first voodoo recordings, which were never released, we've got soul singers on, on songs. And that makes sense to me, knowing Monster Voodoo Machine. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it really... It, it was so fucking great doing it, man. It was just, you know, we did it on this little eight-track studio, and it was it was killer. But, um, you know, my wife grew up with Simone Denny. And so okay. Simone's always sort of been at arm's length. And Simone actually sings on the very last song on the Damn 13 album. On oh, Black okay. Heart. She's, okay. She's in there. Um, so we, you know, we kind of done stuff. And Simone was sick for a very long time and, and wasn't doing anything musically. And in 2000, and I think 10 or 11, 2011, I had already started writing the music for this record. And it was originally going to be a Defcon sound system record. And I asked Simone if she'd like to come and sing. And when I hear Simone's voice, what I hear is fucking great soul in R&B. Like her voice just lends itself perfectly to it. Yeah. More so than dance than the dance music thing. I'm not right. a big dance music guy like that type of techno stuff. right it's not my thing right and so i said look i got these songs you want to come and sing on them and she came in and it was like oh my god this is amazing and she was like write a record for me let's make a record do make I, I want my record but i want it to be like this and so she played me songs that she grew up loving artists that she loved as a child songs she used to sing and she allowed me to marry it with the record that i was already making and it took a long time and a lot of experimentation and um, a lot of some compromise along the way to come up with the record that we have at the end of the day. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it, is, it, it is the record I wish that I had been able to write back in 1982. Like, to me, this is hands down. Like, it, there's, not an, there's not a trace of, you know, distorted guitar to be... To, you know, or heavy guitars or anything right, to be right. found anywhere on it. So that's why it's called Stereo Dynamite. The Stereo Dynamite Sessions. Sessions. 
Yeah, that's why it's called that. Yeah, she, when Simone asked me, um, you know, she's like, Let's, "I want this to be my record." Like, I, 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 like, I want, you know, she really wanted to come back and she wanted to do this thing. And I said, "Okay, but, but here's the compromise then, because this was something I was already working on. Let's make it the Stereo Dynamite sessions, and it, it's, if it's identified that way, you'll also have the opportunity to go and do dance music." Right. as well if, right. if, if, I see. if that pops up so nobody will confuse the two things so when she plays live now it's with the Stereo Dynamite All-Stars right okay I get it and who's that? Um, that's a it's metal a, guys? Or well it's funny because Jason from Voodoo plays guitar right okay um, Pat who was the drummer I grew up playing with from back in 1982-83 he's, he's playing drums uh, Ben from a band called The Lad Classic plays guitar like okay. a total like Zeppelin kind of rock and band. Oh, okay. Um, Dan, who was the original bass player in Ill Scarlet, oh, okay. playing bass. All right. Um, and then Ryan, a keyboard player, who's my favorite Canadian keyboardist. He, he's this twenty-five-year-old kid who has this ska band called the Harmonauts, and they play like legitimate, like '60s rock steady. Right. And it's, dude, it's the greatest thing. Ever. I'm, I've never I've never been happier in my life. Well, wow, it's an interesting turn um, with you doing you know you doing this album with her because I didn't know. I mean, I see. And sorry, and I should say, like Justin McWilliams, who was the lead guitar player in Damn Thirteen, right. and another guy that I, I've been playing with since 1983. You know, co-wrote and co-produced everything on Simone's record, and he is. It's amazing for me to be able to work with somebody as talented as him because we we finish each other's sentences. Right. We have that type of a relationship. That's good. And you know, I think being able to finally see this thirty plus year relationship culminate in in the creation of this record, that's a great reward to itself. Yeah. You know, two friends being able to say like, we did it together. You know, we did this. We did this thing, and that's been that's been really cool. And so. I mean, there's also another added thing that is starting to feel like it's just a footnote, but it's really what your your main thing, what you're doing as well. It's <laughs> like, and we kind of, in a weird way, we uh, collaborated together. Very recently, yes. Very recently with the, uh, I think it's called Music for Boobies. Yep. And it's... Uh, um, Christina from Lacuna Coil, Christina Scabia, she sang on our song, Wild Woman. That name sounds familiar. Yes, and you are Lacuna Coil's manager. Yes, and have been since 2007. I think we played, the first time we played with Lacuna Coil was at Rock'em Ring in Rock'em Park in Germany in 2006. Sure, yeah. And it was with Lacuna Coil, and you know, they're from Italy, and JC and our band is from Italy, so... Ah, the Italian connection immediately. Of They're but of best course. friend. Yeah, best friend. So I mean, I think when we did when we did uh, everything but the kitchen sink together, I think one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was, how did you even become the manager of Lacuna Coil? Not that you couldn't be, you didn't, you didn't have the <laughs> capabilities. But when I first heard that you were, I I was like, what? Adam Sewell from Monster Voodoo Machine? Like, I I, I couldn't make the connection there. Sure. Sure. And it's been years now, so now that's it's it's cemented in my head. Well, it's it, it's crazy to think that we're just I've just finished doing four albums with the band now. 
Like, I mean, I've been with them for that long. Four right. albums, a DVD, and countless fucking world tours. Um, it's amazing. In a, in a, in a, and this is kind of like what we were talking about before, where it's, you know, you're just sort of like, you just go with things. <laughs> um, my life was very crazy when, when I, I quit Monster Voodoo Machine, and I just started Damn 13, and I was broke. And I mean broke. Um, and paid a lot of attention to college and campus radio and how they handled things and stuff. And I was one of one of the, if not the first person to bring street team marketing to Canada. And I, with no money in the bank, a staple gun, a roll of duck, a roll of scotch tape, and a head full of ideas, I went around to every fucking record label in in Toronto and said, "Let me put up posters for you and hand out shit to kids at shows." Let me I'll, I'll, let me organize meet and greets for for fan clubs. Let me do this stuff, and within the space of like a year and a half, all of a sudden Sanctuary Records knocks on my door and says, "Yeah, so uh, the guys in Motorhead and Coc told us that you're the guy to talk to up here." Wow. And I'm like, okay. And I thought they wanted to hire me to do some street marketing for them, and instead they handed me an Amex Gold card and the keys to an office in the EMI building and said, "Go for it." And wow. so for five plus years, I ran Sanctuary Records in Canada, which at the time was the world's largest independent music company. I remember that, yeah. And that was insane. I was working 18-hour days all the time. But we had the management arm of the company, which uh, you know had, had Iron Maiden and Destiny's Child and Jane's Addiction and Guns N' Roses and blah, 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 blah. One of the people that I worked with was Corey Brennan, who manages Slipknot and Stone Sour. Right. So we worked together for a good number of years. When I left Sanctuary, when the company imploded, and I started Stereo Dynamite, we were doing independent marketing services on the side, and EMI hired us to do all of Century Media stuff. And the very first project was Lacuna Coil's Karma Code record. And I had a week from when they did the deal to when the record was coming out to set everything up. We did a great big launch for them. The band was really happy with the launch. I stayed kind of close with the band for about a year, but every time I would meet with the band, they would ask me questions about how the record companies are supposed to work and how things are supposed to be and music industry stuff. And apparently, so so I'm told anyways, at, at the end of it, um, they had asked Corey Brennan if he would manage them. And he said, look, I'm incredibly busy. I just, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't have time to, yeah. to look after you guys properly. But there's this guy named Adam in Toronto that you should talk to who I think would totally get what you guys are doing and probably be really good for you. And they said, Adam Sewell? And he said, yeah. He said, well, we've been working with him for a year already. And Corey just said, well, there's your answer. So I came into work one day and there was just an email in my inbox that said, hey, do you want to manage the band? And I never wanted to go into artist management. Like I didn't want to starve for two years before I'd see a paycheck. Yeah. But it, this was a band that at that time had already sold a million records. And I was, and so I was like, all right, let's do this. It's, ama it's amazing. Like just, just how that, that is, is happening and, and you're, and you're doing it. And I, it, it was, it, Again, it was never anything that I tried to do or wanted to do. 
if the opportunity arose and it was like, well, look, I could try it for six months and if I fail miserably, then I fail. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, here we are, you know, almost 10 years later. Yeah. You know, and it's gone by like that. It's been very, very quick. And they are, look, by and large, um, you know, Italian temperament being what it is. Uh, they they are wonderful wonderful people to work with and to have to be introduced into the world of management to deal with a group of people it was a great group to to work with mm-hmm. and you know a very unique experience you know to have a band with two front people um, so you're dealing with that but also learning how to deal with a band where you know, Christina is constantly being singled out mm-hmm. on her own, and how to how do you deal with that? And what's it like managing a woman at that time, and especially in hard rock in that and, genre, in that yeah, genre yeah, and everything. Um, so it was, again, it was just a challenge. I was just like, "Fuck it, all right, I'm, I'll I'll try." You know, that's awesome. I, I I find that the story is incredible. I mean, it speaks volumes for you know your capabilities and and what you're able to do, but also. Knowing you from walking <laughs> in the peddler on a Saturday to where you're where you're at now, I'm like, um, if this had if I was 15 now, knowing what I know, I'd be like, well, Adam can do it. You could do it and be from Toronto. Like that is something that I could. People should know more about your story because it's 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 a, it is a success story uh, on so many different levels and in, in so many ways. Well, when you thank look you. At I appreciate it. that. Um, you know, I, my life just keeps going, you know, like heart, when you say that you put in a hard day at the office, that shouldn't mean that you filled out five application forms for factor grants. That should mean that you busted ass five times with what's on your plate with the artists that you're working with to keep things going. You know, you should be hiring somebody else to fill out your fucking application forms. You know, that's not hard work. That's just fucking paperwork. And that's somebody else's fucking gig. Your job, if you are at arm's length to the artist, your job should be fucking busting ass with the artist, for the artist, on the artist's behalf, doing those things. Um, that's, but that's just me, you know? That's, that's just the way I feel uh, about it. Um, you know, I, I, I also, but I... You, it, I, I also take great offense at the Irving Azoff approach to, to things. You know, the Bob Lefsetz, Irving Azoff school of thought, which is if you are an artist manager, that's all you are. And you should never try to be an artist and you should never try to be creative and you should never try to be anything else. You should just be the artist fighting on your artist's behalf. But you, you are someone who's it's you're so unique in in that situation. Pro- I, probably, I mean, I'm fortunate that I, I I can kind of figure out a way to kind of balance it. It's a, it's a I don't know anyone who has this route you've taken, and it's something that you can't really map out for anyone else. It's I, just, I could never have mapped it out for me. Yeah, I don't think you could do it again. Tw- if again, no. if you were you were made to. No, I, I should say that there was a. A girl that I, I knew back from high school, and I bumped into her, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Or not, I guess it wasn't that long ago, um, six years ago or something. But, and 
And she said, oh, are you still uh, doing anything with music? I said, oh, yeah. I'm, you know, sort of got her up to speed as to what I was doing. And she said, that's fucking crazy. You really you make a living in music? And I said, yeah. She said, you know, I got to give it to you because nobody thought you could do it. So what do you mean? She said, everybody used to talk about what a fucking crazy head you had going on because nobody thought you were ever going to be able to fucking put anything together fucking musically. Nobody thought you'd ever fucking have a go at it. Because some congratulations. Yeah. I walked away feeling like, thanks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess cool. she meant it as a compliment, but it just it, kind of... It hit me in a backhanded way, yeah, I tell yeah. you. Is that how we end this podcast? Well, like, uh, there's got to be a... <laughs> <laughs> well, I know... Oh, shit. Here ...that we go. she was wrong. Oh. That's... T- she's like... What, what is she doing now? Yeah, fuck her. Yeah. What, what, what is she doing now? Don't, don't tell me she runs like the pediatric department in some hospital or something i have no idea i don't even remember it was was a really quick she's like a surgeon oh you know what was you know it was a good one was i bumped into i i uh century media had sent me a a plaque for lacuna coil record sales and i was picking it up from the the post office and i was carrying it along and i bumped into another friend of ours and uh and she said oh what do you got in the box i said i a gold record or something She's like, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. You and your gold records, as if that's going to happen. Walks off. I would have ripped that box <laughs> right in front of her. Are you serious? Yeah. What do you, I mean, I know what you think. I mean, it's happened to all of us. You just got to eat it at this yeah, point. I was like, I was, I, I, at a certain, like, again, at a certain point, I just, like, I, I don't, you know, I try not to be the guy jumping out. Look, 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 look. It's yeah, real, of course. It's, it's a it's a definite fine. You know, it's just like, okay, that's all right. Whatever. That's cool. Good to go. I would have ripped the box. Up. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, <laughs> then I, you know, you got to walk home with two things to carry. Right, right. <laughs> or put the gold record back into the broken box and have it fall out. And crack. That would be. <laughs> oh, that would have been. That would have just been the fucking icing on the that cake. That would have happened. It, for me, it probably would have happened. Well, thanks, Adam. Thank you for this, man. This is uh, this is great. I am someone who does not doubt that uh, many platinum and gold records uh, are adorning your walls. Oh, thank you. I Appreciate that. Oh, that's. Do you see what's? What I that did one see is? that. Yes, that's a Milli Vanilli platinum fucking record. But it is. That that's actually my wife's. Uh, when she oh, okay. she worked at BMG for a long time, and when she left, they said, "We want to give you something going away <laughs> gift. What do you want?" And she just pointed at it, and they were like, "Really?" And she's like, "Yeah, that's all I want." And so she walked out of the building carrying a fucking platinum Milli Vanilli. Record. Did she work on that record? No, no, no. It's just because it is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> it kind of makes a statement about the music industry. It does. It, it truly, truly does. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, thanks man. These are painful days Nights filled with shame Longing to keep you from walking away But your heart has no flame We've got faith in love Time's run out for us But a lifetime of memories still remain And so does the pain Oh, yeah.
It hurts to care.